0: Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory. And again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And we started this morning talking about... Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is, uh, written a long time ago. Nobody really seems to know exactly when. Many people think that it was written by Solomon. Some think that the author was the inspiration of, received by Solomon. Some think it was written long time after Solomon. But it probably had its roots with Solomon, uh, at least in that era, and it was. It's it, you find it right after Proverbs, which is a similar book, in the sense that Proverbs is giving you all kinds of advice about wisdom and women and fools and uh, lots of things, and it's almost always layered in its actual meaning. And, uh, we've gone through a lot of Proverbs, we've quoted Proverbs many times, and I, I may even look at some Proverbs quotes today as we continue through, uh, Ecclesiastes. And of course it was, the book is supposedly written by the preacher or the teacher, depending on how you translate it. But, uh, the teacher is really whoever inspired all the other books, which is supposedly the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit that breathed upon the void of the universe and gave it form. And so, whatever the divine intelligence is, it comes to us at least by way of the Holy Spirit, who is the gatherer of those who receive the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is the, this Holy Spirit is the teacher, the preacher, the comforter. And so it's referenced in lots of sacred scripts uh, by lots of people, but then other people come along and look at these sacred scripts, and they interpret the sacred scripts, and they often go astray. So the question is, what is what is that divine will, that divine inspirer, that uh, revealing of the Holy Spirit really all about? Well, we're walking around it by walking to... Ecclesiastes, which started with the idea that uh, vanity of vanities, that vanity of vanities, all is vanity, according to the preacher, the teacher of Ecclesiastes. And the word that we often see in Ecclesiastes for vanity, or vanity of vanities, is, is the basic word hebel. Uh, which is, hey, be it, lamad. As, as a base root word. It doesn't always appear just as that because they will add other letters like yad and mim, which may vary the syntax. Like you, like if you put a bob at the beginning of a word, it kind of means and whatever the word is. But, uh, the point is, is that uh, this, uh, this word hebel is what they put in there to uh, translate as vanities. And to some degrees, that, that is what it means, is vanities. But it doesn't always just mean vanities. It, it And it's not the only word in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament that is translated vanities there's actually quite a few words that are translated vanity or vanities and uh, so anyway i go through a number of these things in a page called vanities <laughs> which of course is uh is you know kind of a study in what these different words mean So anyway, the word translated vanities is, like I said, is Hebel in this particular quote. And it gives him the Strong's number of 1892, and it's spelled, hey, be it, lamad. It's said to mean vapor or breath. It's not, it doesn't say it means vanities. It's translated vanities, but it means vapor or breath. And it's supposedly from a word, uh, That is given the number 1891, which means to empty, or uh, they actually in one place they call it emptily, (laughs) but it's empty, Um, literally void, And, and we'll see that as we see some of the places that we first see that word, but I'm just going to run through some of these words real quick. Because that's not really the topic, it, it, but it's important to know that there's more than one word for vanity. And the other one is shav, which is nothing like hebel. It has none of the same letters. And we see it in Exodus 27. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. And so there's another word that can be translated vain or vanities. We see it in Deuteronomy 511. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. There it is again. And for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Most people don't understand what it means to take his name in vain. That is to say that I believe in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I am uh, uh, participating with Jesus in uh, all this stuff. But you're actually doing the opposite of what Jesus said. You're not doing the will of the Father. You're not doing what Jesus said. You're saying that you're a part of Jesus, a part of what Jesus did, a part of his holy church. But you aren't actually doing what Jesus said. So you're actually taking his name in vain because you're claiming to be a follower, but you're not actually doing what he said. Now, we have people who say, oh yeah, I'm a part of his holy church. And we say, who are you? I don't know you. i never heard of you. And, oh no, I've always been a part of His Holy Church. And, uh, for, for, you know, five years, ten years, fifteen years. But nobody at His Holy Church even knows what your name is. <laughs> so, what is going on? You know, what are you talking about? How can you be a part of it if nobody at His Holy Church knows who you are? Now, obviously, His Holy Church is a phrase. It's not an institution created by me. We are the people here who are trying to conform to what His Holy Church should be, what it looks like. Only Christ can really say whether we're a part of His Holy Church. But there are some tells that will tell us if you're really a part of His Holy Church. Are you sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands? Because He commanded that His ministers, His disciples... His student ministers make the people organize themselves in such a fashion. And we see the early church doing it in 100 A.D., in 200 A.D., even up into 300 A.D. and beyond. Now, by 300 A.D., at least by 319, we see another church starting to form in another pattern. Not tens, hundreds, and thousands, although they did use the tens, hundreds, and thousands, They were more of a top-down church. They were more of an indirect democracy because they, you know, like all the people of Milan, elected a single bishop. That's not the way Christ said to do it. You organize in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. A bishop is an overseer. And so all that really means is that he is a minister to ministers. If you're a minister to ministers... You're an overseer of ten congregations. At least. Maybe a hundred congregations. Because you got ten people, ten families, ten heads of families. It's always based on heads of families. And those ten people pick a minister. And they have to, if we go by the tradition of the Israelites, which was the traditions given to them by Moses, we know that the Israelites sewed the breeches of the Levites, who were the ministers of Israel. Why did they have to sew their breeches? Why are, why are they making underwear? Well, go read an article on breeches. It had nothing to do with underwear. But it sounds like it when you read the translations. Just like vanity of vanity" sounds like translations. It sounds like we're talking about translations. Uh but are we really talking about translations? See, Hebel is translated vanity sixty-one times, it's translated vain eleven times, in one place it's actually translated altogether. <laughs> Wait a minute, how do you translate it altogether? It's defined as vapor, breath, or or vanity. It adds vanity. It's the same as the name. Abel. You know, like in Cain and Abel. And it supposedly means breath. But it's translated vanity because this breath could mean vanity. If you listen to our earlier show on Ecclesiastes, the author is talking about vexing, vexation of the spirit. Which is grasping at air grasping at the wind you see and what is the wind but the breath of you know the weather you know the wind is blowing because air is moving and so you're grasping at the air like you're going to grab air grab a chunk of air (laughs) and that's vanity because you can't really grab air it's kind of a fruitless exercise of grabbing air And so, this is how the word in the Hebrew is connected, Hebel is connected with the idea of vanity, is mostly, well, I'm not going to say mostly, but at least in part due to Ecclesiastes. Because he he expounds upon this idea of what is vanity, it's like grasping air. And so therefore, and like we've always known, well, I don't know if you've always known, but we've always been saying for years and years and years of doing our shows that almost every Hebrew word has a physical meaning and a more abstract meaning. You know, like honor, same word for honor is the word for fat. Fattening somebody. Giving them fat. Making them fat. Which is actually just, fat is what you know, especially if you're on a keto diet, fat is what you live on. You live on the fat. Because the fact that your ketones that are producing your body consumes the fat. You're not living on carbohydrates. You know, if you're a shepherd out on the desert, you're not living on carbohydrates. You're living on meat. And so, therefore, you're living on the fat. And the fatter the sheep are, the more nutritious they are for you. But, so you have the word honor that means to fatten, and that's when they say honor thy father and thy mother. It means to fatten thy father and thy mother. Take care of them, provide for them, make sure they got enough to eat, make sure they have a coat if they, if it's cold. You're supposed to be taking care of them. They took care of you when you grew up, and now you're supposed to take care of them. This is one of the things that comes up in Ecclesiastes. That what goes around comes around. You know. When you were bald and unable to control your bladder, were just born out of your mother's womb, your mother took care of you. She washed you, she cleaned you, she fed you. Now, when your parents are old, you're supposed to take care of them. Because there's a time and a season for everything. But the state says, no, don't worry about it, we'll take care of them. (laughs) But of course, because you listened to that, you've gone back into the bondage of Egypt because the state said we'll take care of social security we'll take care of the welfare of your parents don't you worry about it. and the church said fine you know at first there was a i actually just heard his name mentioned the other day i'm trying to think of who mentioned it. it was somebody uh was talking about people who were uh, was somebody was playing a recording in the background and i heard the mentioning this catholic priest who objected to the social security act But he withdrew his objection after meeting with Eleanor Roosevelt in New York. And I don't know what they talked about. But he was absolutely against the idea of Social Security through the power of the state. But then he met with Eleanor and they made some sort of deal where now all of a sudden, it's okay. (laughs) You can do that again. So, like, what the heck was that all about? Well, actually, I have... I have talked in the past about what that is probably all about. But it's not the topic of today, so I may not tell you. But there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. And I can't tell everybody everything. But everybody should be figuring these things out as we go. And and uh it isn't important that you figure out every little bit. Because figuring out every little bit is... Simply climbing around in the tree of knowledge. What you really want to do is get over to the tree of life. The tree of life will tell you what you need to know. You don't need to know everything. You need to know what is righteous, because that's what we're seeking, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So if you're on our Ecclesiastes page again, you may have to reload it because I just fixed something else. <laughs> I left out, evidently it was probably part of the, uh when I was coding in the page, I evidently uh copied something from one thing, and it uh, changed, and, and it, that's the problem with coding, is it will repeat it over and over again. So anyway, a couple of the other words that are translated into uh, this uh, idea of vain. You know, like I said, the, the, this this word shav is translated vain 22 times, vanity 22 times, but it's translated false five times, lying two times, and falsely once, and lies once. It means emptiness, vanity, but it also means falsehood. What is a falsehood? What is a lie? It is missing the truth. It is empty of the truth. So, it is worthless, which is another part of the definition of this word, shav. Uh, And and shav comes from another word that is actually spelled, uh, I think it's spelled the same. Yeah. Shin, vav, elef. And it, believe it or not, (laughs) let's see, uh i have to go to the take a look at it okay yeah uh it's it's spelled the same but it can also be spelled shim elif hey so there's more than one spelling There's probably not it's just that there in the text by changing the letters or the order of the letters or adding letters or taking away letters you can slightly change the meaning. And they do it all the time. But the translators don't always pay attention to that. But this other word that it's from, that is sometimes spelled exactly the same, means desolation, destruction, desolate, destroy, can mean just storm, uh, wasteness, or is defined ravage, devastate, or ruin. Well, who ruined the people of Rome? And I'm just going to add this in so that you get... Because you're pulling these ideas together. Somebody ruined the people of Rome, and according to Plutarch, it was he who spread amongst them gifts, gratuities, and benefits. Well, the guy spreading the gifts, gratuities, and benefits only was able to do it because he took the took something away from somebody else so he had this surplus to give to the people. When John the Baptist was saying if you have two coats share with those that don't have two coats or don't have a coat at all. Do the same in meats." John the Baptist didn't say that if your neighbor has no coat go out and steal a coat from somebody else Cheat somebody else out of a coat. Force somebody else to give up their coat so that you will have a coat to give your neighbor who has no coat. That's not what John the Baptist says. John the Baptist said that you had to share of what you have. And we listened this morning and we saw, if you were listening this morning, we saw that Jesus, I mean God, is a capitalist. He wants you to own your labor. He doesn't want somebody else to own your labor. I mean, somebody else owned your labor when you were in the bondage of Egypt. The Pharaoh owned a portion of your labor. You got to keep 80%, but 20% you had to give to the Pharaoh and his and his government. That was the bondage of Egypt. So, that's God didn't want you to return to the bondage of Egypt. He wanted the Israelites to go into the bondage of Egypt. It was built into the system that they would go into the bondage of Egypt because they sold their brother into the bondage of Egypt. If you're putting somebody into the bondage of Egypt or into some form of bondage, you yourself will go into bondage because there's a season for everything. And if you become a part of this season, you know, Caesar portrayed the Gauls. He, he he lied to them and in, in, in coerced them into battles, and then he sold all their wives and their children into slavery, made lots of money, and gave it away to the Romans. But then Ro- Caesar was stabbed to death by his buddies, <laughs> Brutus and Tu Brute. What goes around comes around. And that's one of the major themes of Ecclesiastes. So anyway, we looked at this word, Shav. Which is translated vain, but comes from the idea of ruining, desolating. And as we get farther into Ecclesiastes, we will hear them talking about the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools is a sacrifice through a system of force. Where you have to give, you have to sacrifice in order to provide the social safety net of society. And that will bring ruin to society. And we can give you lots of people who say that, besides Plutarch. Polybius said basically the same thing. Christ said it. Peter said it. Paul said it. And and you're not supposed to do it, because it's desiring benefits at the expense of somebody else's covetous practice. That will make you merchandise, curse your children, and return you to the yoke of bondage, entangle you again in the yoke of bondage, and make you merchandise. So that when you get your mark of the beast, which you already have, <laughs> that, that you will belong to somebody else. You will be their merchandise. Because it says "the these traveling merchants of the earth have a full stock, including slaves and souls of men. Now the souls of men is when you go along with it. The slave is when you went along with it, now you're a slave. You're back in the bondage. You don't own all your labor. Like Ecclesiastes says, God intended that you own all your labor. Which is why in Deuteronomy 17, we are told, never elect anybody to an office that can exercise authority, that can do anything to return you to the bondage of Egypt. And of course, They elected FDR. They elected him three times. Kind of like three strikes. And you're out. And he brought you back into the bondage of Egypt. Now, people listening for the first time will say, Social Security? There's something wrong with Social Security? Well, it's broke. It's been broke since its inception. It's never been solvent. And if you don't believe that, we put it down in black and white. We show you the law. We show you the rulings of the Supreme Court. Social Security has never been solved. Now, CNN will tell you otherwise. But, my God doesn't live at CNN. The truth isn't at CNN. We know that. (laughs) The truth is, Social Security has always been broke. And it's a system like the Corbin of the Pharisees and Herod. And Augustus Caesar. And it will ruin the people. And it has ruined a lot of people. But the good news is you can repent, turn around, think differently, and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And there's still little time to do that. I don't know how much time, because I don't know how long you're going to live. But there's another word that is also translated into vanity and vain. And it's sometimes pronounced reek or reik. And it's composed of the Hebrew letters resh yod, kuf. And it's given a strong number 7385. And it means empty or empty out. And uh, even includes the idea of idle, Like somebody who doesn't do what they should be doing. You know and uh but still wants to eat <laughs> he doesn't go out and grow his own food or or earn money to buy his own food, but he still wants to eat and we talked about that a little bit this morning in Ecclesiastes where Ecclesiastes where uh he didn't do the work, but he still wanted to eat he was, wanted to count it as his portion and and there's plenty of that's called the entitlement syndrome. And it's it's been around for a long time. If we read in Leviticus 26.20, we can read, And your strength shall be spent in vain. It, you spend your strength, but your reward for it is empty. It, 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 your strength is just emptied out. It's just poured out. For your land shall not yield her increase, neither shall the trees of the land yield their fruits. For some reason, rather, the strength has been spent you go to Leviticus 26 and read the verses before and find out what that is. I mean, if you're reading along on our page, Vanity, you can see where you can click on the Leviticus 26 and we'll take you to a copy and you can do that. But Job 39.16 says, She is hardened against the young ones as though they were not hers. Now, People do that all the time. People aren't taking care of their children. Uh, and, uh, of course, now many times when you're talking about women, and the Bible is symbolic, because all the words in Hebrew have a physical meaning. We could be talking about a woman, or we could be talking about an institution. You know, like, you know, strange fire. The same word for strange fire is the word for a woman. So are we talking about a strange woman or are we talking about a strange fire? And the church is supposed to be a woman, identified as a woman. I mean, you have the the harlot woman riding the back of the beast. That's the false church. And all the daughters of the false church that are mentioned in Revelation, these are all institutions. And why a woman? Because the church is supposed to be the caregiver of society. Now, it... It doesn't tax anybody. It doesn't have an inexhaustible source of funds. But the church always was providing the social welfare. We see Paul doing that. There's a dearth and Paul's taking off with supplies. He's going to take it way over there to Corinth. Or he's going to take it over to Galatia. Because he's the church. And he's practicing pure religion. He's, He's going to take supplies to somebody to help them out. And he's going to get those supplies because somebody gave donations. Free will offerings. Which is what Moses required. If you were going to take an offering to the Levites and give it to the Levites, tied to the Levites with this offering, had to be a free will offering. It couldn't be a forced offering. Why? Because if it's a forced offering, you're back in Egypt again. It's an offering. It's a sacrifice. But it's by force. So that's the sacrifice of fools. Now you still may owe it because you've taken a vow. And of course, this morning we talked about Ecclesiastes talking about those who take a vow, and we'll talk more about that. But anyway, if we go to Genesis 37:24, we see, and they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. That's the same word. Reek and rake. 7386. There was no water in it. And so anyway, you can read Genesis 37 and find out more about why they use that particular word there. Now, this word, word reek or rake or rake, we also see mentioned by Christ. And we see it in the Greek text. And we see it in Matthew five twenty two. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, empty, <laughs> reke, rock, empty, shall be in danger of judgment of the council but whoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire so we can go into that and we've gone into that before in detail but it's just interesting to note that this particular word that is sometimes translated vanity is is referenced in the new testament in that matthew quote and again, in the Hebrew, it's Resh Yad Kuf. And it's, it's from the word uh, 7324, uh, which, anyway, it's translated vain, vanity, no purpose, empty, vain thing. But it actually means emptiness, you know, without uh, idle, without doing the work that you should be doing. So, and, and it's from this word that means, uh, that is a verb that actually means to make empty. So, anyway. So that's a, another word that is translated vain. Now, if you're just reading the English text, you, you don't know which one that you're seeing there. Are, are, are you seeing the word Hebel? Are you seeing the word Shav? Are you seeing the word Reek or Reke? Uh, Or are you seeing the word tohu? Because the word tohu also is translated vain and vanity. But it's also translated confusion. And uh it first appears in Genesis one two. And the earth was without form. There that word without form. That's the tohu. And void and darkness. Upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So that first appearance of this word tohu is without form. But later on, it is translated vain four times, vanity four times, confusion three times, without form twice it appears as that. But it also appears as wilderness. Sometimes when they say wilderness, there's other words they translate wilderness. Wilderness means that it's, you know, like the trees are, it's not an orchard. It, it, it's, it's a little bit more chaotic. It, it doesn't, it's a little more formless. It's wilderness. But it can also mean a wasteland. And it's even translated waste. Or empty place. But again, empty place is a little bit like that word empty. So, even though it's completely different letters, uh, it has, again, it touches a little bit on that idea of emptiness without form, void, etc. Still, there's another word that is translated vain or vanity, or certainly vain. And that's safa, which is shin, uh, Pi or pay. Uh, hey. And it's, it's actually most often translated lip. But it's also translated bank, like in the bank of a river. Or brim, the edge of a lake. Or it's actually even translated edge. Well, your lips is the edge of your mouth. But it's also translated speech and shore and border and side... So it's translated but twice twice it's translated vain. And we see it in Second Kings eighteen, twenty. Thou sayest, but they are but vain words. So how did they get vain words out of that? I mean it's it's about it lips, it lips are a lot of times about speech, but somehow or other they interpret it as vain words. And we see the same phrase in Isaiah thirty six, five, where it says, But they are but vain words. And and to be honest, they they are but is not actually in the original text. They just added that to but the idea of vain words. They say, I say vain words. Counsel and strength for war, now on whom dost thou trust? That thou rebellest against me. So that was the actual sentence. And and Second Kings and Isaiah thirty six are duplicated sentences, so that's why you, you find it in there. But in those it's translated vain. But like I say, most of the time it's translated Lips. But there's another word, sheker, which is shin, uh, kuf, uh, resh. It's commonly translated lie, but at least five times it's translated vain. One time you will see it in Proverbs thirty-one, thirty. Favor is deceitful. And that's the, uh, uh, I'm not sure which one that is. But that's another word that is translated vain. And I'll I'll have to look that up. But uh, I'll put it in the notes. Uh, beauty is vain. That's a, another word that's translated vain. But uh, a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. And the word Shekar is into into deceitful because the word hebel is already translated vain. So the eighteen ninety two that's hebel, but the deceitful, which is a word that is often translated vain, is translated deceitful because they already have the word vain there. But the five times where we see this word translated vain is for Samuel. Twenty five twenty one. Now David said, Surely in vain have I kept all of this fellow hath in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertained unto him, and he hath requited me evil for good. So somebody was given him evil for good. And you can read that in 1 Samuel 25. But Psalms 33, David uses it again. And a horse is a vain thing for safety. In other words, a horse is not going to save you. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. What really David is talking about is that God delivers us. And we talked about that this morning. When we showed you that if if you follow the ways of God. And you literally belong to God. Because you do what God says you're supposed to do. Not because you you say you believe that you belong to God. But you actually are a doer of the word. Then God can protect you like he protected the Israelites when the armies of the Pharaoh came down on them. But you, this is why when we we're going through Exodus I pointed out that there were a group of Israelites and certainly Egyptians that did not follow Moses, they went off a different route. They thought, I'm not going down that wadi. I'm not going, I don't know why, but they decided to go the standard route. We never heard of them again. But the ones who followed Moses and and tried to some degree to do what Moses said, God intervened and protected them from the Pharaoh. And, And this is Something you should believe in, but I'm not going to require. But a horse, an army, your your supply stash, <laughs> those your they're not going to save you. What's going to save you is the power of God, and the power of God is real. And a lot of people talk about it. But when you know that the power of God is real, then people are actually doing what Christ said. That's how you tell. Jeremiah 8.8 8, How do ye say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The law. The pen of the scribes is in vain. You read the law. You recite the Ten Commandments. You say, Yeah, I I follow the law. I mean, it's like the Levites, not the Levites, but the Israelites who want to keep the leaven out. So they have a holiday where we have to get all the leaven out of our house and we take it over to our neighbor's house and we leave it there for seven days. Then we can go back and get it. Because they think they got the leaven out, but they don't know, again, the word leaven also means cruelty. So they got the yeast out of the house, but they didn't get the cruelty out of their house. Because they're still depending on men who exercise authority one over the other to take care of the need, needy of their society. And they shouldn't do that. So, anyway, uh, back to... Uh, uh, that word Shekhar, so it shows up. There was a couple other places, but we don't need to go through all of them. Another word that's also translated vain is avin, and you see it in Zechariah. As a matter of fact, there's six uh, six other places that shows up, and I have them on the page of vain and vanity. And I also give several other exam uh, examples. I mean, it's in Zechariah too, but it's also, you know, if you read, I have Zechariah one. And two, I think I have it all the way up to verse three. Yeah, I have verse three in there. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherd, and I punished the goats. For the Lord of hosts hath visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as his goodly horse in battle. Well, he didn't make anybody horses. I mean, it's not like, you know... um, Cinderella, where you, you turn people into horses or, or mice into horses or, no, it, these are metaphors. He didn't punish goats. You know, he didn't, uh, kindle a fire against the shepherd. These are, the shepherd are all you ministers out there who tell the people that you don't have to do anything. You just believe in the stuff that I tell you and then, then you're automatically saved and, just keep coming back to my church and tithing them to me because I don't want to go get a real job. So those are the shepherds who are the, that actually are telling you that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods as long as you do it through men who exercise authority, even though Jesus says it is not to be that way with you. You somehow or other think that it is, should be that way with you. But that, that makes, you're one of the shepherds. And the people that support you are the goats. Because they're not following sheep, that uh, they're not following Jesus. They're not his. They don't hear his voice because he said you were not to be that way. So we know who the true flock of Christ is: is the ones who say, "Yeah, we shouldn't be coveting our neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority like the governments of the Gentiles," because Jesus said exactly that. You're not to. You've seen the governments of the Gentiles who called themselves benefactors but exercised authority one over the other and called themselves benefactor. Well, Obama called himself a benefactor. You know, uh, FDR was a benefactor of the people. But he wasn't taking money out of his pocket. He was taking money out of your neighbor's pocket. He was borrowing against the future. And you're still borrowing against the future. All those guys wanting to raise the debt ceiling they're not Christians. they're not doing what Christ said, and they're not telling you that this is covenant. I was just talking to somebody in government today. We talking about all the problems they're having with the hospital, and I uh, can't get enough people there. They're, they can't they're, the services are dropping. They're, the, you know the walk-in uh, services at the hospital are, are going to only be a couple days a week because they're they're running out of money. They're running out of, they got a lot of money. They were given a lot of money. But they've had to hire all kinds of traveling nurses because they required everybody to get the vaccination and a lot of nurses quit. They did the same thing up in in some of the other hospitals. But they could hire traveling nurses. Now, well, they must be all vaccinated, right? No. Traveling nurses weren't required to get vaccinated. Why is that? Because they wanted to bankrupt all the hospitals. Whoever designed this plot, this conspiracy, they offered people money to coerce their employees to get the shot. A lot of the employees got the shot. Some of them are dead now. But... A lot of them did get the shot. Some of them are 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 now doing other things because they were literally forced out. They they actually say, Well nobody held anybody down. No but you threatened to take their job away, you threatened you you laid them off. We we saw that in many places. And you did threaten them. I mean, there's all kinds of lawsuits now going after them, but a lot of the damage is done. They don't care because eventually they'll crash the banks. But right now, they're just bankrupting all these hospitals that got this extra money that was supposedly coming to them, which was all just coming out. of it It wasn't coming from the government. No money comes from the government. It comes from your neighbor. But you're okay with that. You're okay... You, you've become accustomed to taking away from your neighbor so much that you don't even think about the fact that all the benefits you get from government are taken away from your neighbor. You know, one of the top economists in the world, as far as I'm concerned in the world, but at least in the United States, was pointing out that Social Security it has been bankrupt for a long time. It can't give you anything. Without forcing somebody else to contribute. I mean literally forcing them with a gun to contribute. Under threat of arrest, threat of being put in jail, threat of their property taken away, all that stuff. Because it's a system based on force. It's not a system based on charity like Christ said. Like Moses said. Like Abraham said. It's a system based on force like Nimrod said. Like Cain said, like the king of Sodom said, like Caesar said, like Pharaoh said, you see, you're on the wrong side of history. But the good news is you can change sides. But bad news is you've taken a vow, you've taken, you've given consent taking a pledge and people say well where's the contract well it's easy to show that's why I wrote a whole book showing you the contract yeah a child should be able to figure it out uh, my daughter read the book when she was 12 she, she knew yeah this makes sense well, now of course I didn't just take it to 12 year olds I took it to top lawyers in the United States uh, guys who wrote law books Guys who have been in front of the Supreme Court, so many times I couldn't even count them all, they read it, and they said, Whoa! Wow! This is it. This is true. But a lot of people have read it, and they still don't get it. I'm just telling you how you got in the bondage of Egypt. You're willing to covet your neighbor's goods. And you're willing to go to men who exercise authority to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. And you signed up for that system. Which Christ said was you were not to be that way. And all your preachers didn't tell you. Well now the anger of the Lord is kindled against those shepherds.
1: Now some of them did it for all kinds of reasons.
0: And fortunately I don't have to decide which ones are in trouble. And which ones may have a reprieve in Christ's name. I don't have to decide that. God will decide that. And he's deciding it as we speak. He's deciding it as you're listening. Because you're either going to repent and say, whoa, we have gone the wrong way. We need to turn around. And then, you know, Sam Harris and all the other goats, you know, I always pick on Sam Harris, but he's the one who said, a goat is a goat is a goat. <laughs> well, obviously, God was not punishing Goats. <laughs> It's a symbol. It's a metaphor. You know, he wasn't turning people into horses either. So anyway, I gave a couple other examples. And I show how, you know, the same word is translated vanity in one place. When you find it in a verse like Psalms forty-one six, they translated iniquity. Because there's another word there that they've already translated which is shav? They've already translated vanity, and it wouldn't sound right. He speaketh vanity; his heart gathered vanity to itself. So they they go back to a more you know adequate uh, termination uh, determination as to what to put there in that. I mean, it was difficult to translate this. Very difficult. And I have great sympathy for the translators hired by King James. Not a lot of sympathy for King James. But the guys he hired, they were struggling with this. But I give a couple of other quotes, Isaiah 59, 4 and Hosea twelve eleven, where we see the same thing where the word that is sometimes translated vanity is also translated iniquity. And I take the time to point this out. Because as we go through Ecclesiastes, we're going to see how this idea of iniquity and sacrifice of fools is connected. Because whoever inspired the writing of Ecclesiastes was making these connections. The first three chapters, basically the first three chapters and a little bit more, is basically telling you, this is vanity. All the wealth you gather is vanity. All the property you gather is vanity. All the prestige you gather is vanity. None of these will save you. And of course, like I was just reading there, in Psalms, your horse is not going to save you. You know, none of these things are going to save you. But what is going to save you? What are we supposed to be seeking? According to Christ. We're seeking the kingdom of God, which is the government of God. We know the government of God, of go, government of God operates on love, which is the same as charity, because the same word translated love is also translated charity. And charity is about free will offerings. It's not forced offerings. It's not, it's not really charity anymore. If it's forced. Which is... The oxymoron of legal charity, legal charity is when the civil government forces you to contribute in order to provide a social safety net for society. That's legal charity. But it's, it's not really charity. <laughs> it's, it's charity You're, you have to give or go to jail. And all modern Christians, I shouldn't say all, a lot, a really lot, lot, lot of modern Christians think that's okay. Because uh, they just want to go to church and feel good. They want to go there and the good feeling they get out of it, they say, well, I got something out of today's sermon. What'd you get? I got to feel good. <laughs> I really like the music too, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So anyway, we went through all that. We did one and two this morning. We got through three. We were down to exercise. The section exercise, verses 10, 11, and 12, and, and the last one there. Know that there is no good in them but for man to rejoice and to do good in his life. So, because you do good doesn't make you good. But that's that's what you should be doing. You should be doing good. If you're not doing good, you're you're probably not born again. But you're not saved by the good things that you do. You're, you're saved because you start eating of the tree of life instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of your personal doctrines, the doctrines of your church. You're eating all that stuff and consuming it. That's not what saves you. It's the tree of life that saves you. But how do you know you're eating of the tree of life? How do you know the spiritual experience you're receiving is not really a spiritual experience, but just an emotional experience? Because the first three chapters were talking about how he was listening to the wisdom of his heart, but it was leading him astray. It was taking him to vain and vanity and to self-indulgent pleasures. Because he was following the leading of his heart. His own heart. But, you know, like, we could say, yeah, I, I want to follow the leading of my heart, but only if my heart is after the heart of Jesus Christ. The heart of righteousness of God. Then I want to follow that. But that's not, the righteousness of God is not really my heart, but my heart can choose to draw near it. And, but... It has to choose to come into my heart or not. You see, see the dilemma here. And so, what will tell you that your heart is the heart of God? By what you do. James tells you that. That's a good place. I can put a footnote there. I have a footnote that I can put in there. It's what you do. It's not what you say. It's not what you feel. Because the guy who was following his heart, he felt like this was going to make me happy. But it didn't. It was empty. It was vanity. So anyway, that's the importance of those three verses, putting it together. And by doing good, you become face to face with the fact that you yourself are not good, because it's sometimes difficult to do good. But then you can see that, that you need... the only way the good is going to dwell in you is that you let it in. You're not going to save yourself. Not by your doctrine, not by your dogma, not by magic words, not by genuflecting, not by holy water, not by a horse, not by goats, not by sheep, not by guns and weapons. None of those things are going to save you. It's the tree of life that's going to save you. It's the Holy Spirit is your comforter. But how do you draw near it? Well, there's a lot of a lot of things to do. And sacrifice is one of those things. But you can't do it as a gimmick. Because you don't know who to sacrifice or what to sacrifice or when to sacrifice or who to give it to. You don't know that. You can calculate that up, but then you're crawling around in the tree of knowledge again. You need the Holy Spirit. And so, you're going to need to turn off the Spirit in your own heart, in your own mind, and listen to the Holy Spirit and wait upon the Lord. Now, how do you know it's the Lord and not some fake spirit? Well, by what it's asking you to do, maybe. And that's the challenge. But anyway, we'll go into verse 13. So that God is a capitalist, I say. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. Well, most of you out there, you can't enjoy the fruits of all your labor because a portion of your labor belongs to somebody else. And it belongs to somebody else because you were entangled again in the bondage of Egypt. And if all these people who think that they're reviving and making America great would realize that you have returned to the bondage of Egypt, you know, the pillow guy and and Trump, and of course Schumer should realize that too, but uh it may take a little bit more lightning and thunder to get Schumer to realize anything. And I've seen that guy just stand there talking to himself. That guy is strange. But uh we had a guy just on a road outside, uh, and I saw him from a distance, and all of a sudden he laid down in the middle of the road. He's rolling around on the ground. And he got up and he, and he did like three circles in a row. And then he laid down, back down on the ground and he kind of rolled around and he turned on his face and and then he was on his hands and knees and then he got up and he turned the circle. I thought like, what the heck is that guy doing? (laughs) You know, I mean, if he was just laying there rolling around on the ground, I would have run down and see if he needed CPR or something. But he would get up and, and I, I couldn't figure it out. And just an adventure yesterday. We live out in the middle of nowhere. So it was kind of bizarre. I mean, it, was a, it was a road that went down through the sagebrush. And then I saw two guys walking up from the lake. And they were walking. in Kind of odd clothes for out here. and Walking up. And they were very slow. And they were kind of watching them. I thought, well, like, they, they were way closer than me. And maybe they could see something I didn't see. And, and eventually I... I wasn't going to go down without my phone, so I went in the house and got my phone. I mentioned it to my son that there's somebody down there. It's crazy. (laughs) And so he jumped in the car and he went down, and I went down and I put the I didn't go all the way down, but I put my dog in the car, in the truck. But the dog can get out if I call him. He can open up the window and get out. He knows how to. (laughs) So he could get out and come a running, but. And then I went, was going out in the field to check something, and I could cross the fence. I could see, you know, these guys jump my son or something. But it ended up that the guy was evidently having a bad trip or something. And and the other guys said that he they're watching him really close, and they're hoping he comes to it. He's had a lot of problems, and and they're just kind of waiting for him to kind of kind of wear off. So I don't know. They're down there. Evidently taking drugs, so um they they didn't look like druggies. The the one guy who was doing all the rolling around, he looked a little queer uh weird, strange, but not like anything you can put your finger on. He was just dressed a little different than a lot of the other people. But the other guys were didn't seem like you know, tweakers, but uh something was going on. But anyway, so you see this strange behavior in people, and many times it's self-inflicted. And, but they, and you, and you see them going back to the drugs, and back to the booze, and back to, and you think like, what are you doing? But of course, I'm out here, and I, I'm, I don't have the ropes and the ties and the binds, On me that they have. So I have to be sympathetic. Not condoning what they're doing. Not giving them license. But I have to see beyond their wickedness. Beyond their unrighteousness. Beyond their foolishness. And and deal with their soul. You have to walk in constant forgiveness. State of forgiveness. You have to leave judgment to God. In order to help people like that. Cause you can't come in judging them. You have to, you have to come with a genuine concern. I know it all, and this is, I'm just gonna mention this, it may be for somebody out there, that a lot of people, they, uh, I see them have tremendous patience with their dog. I, I'm just shocked at how much patience they have with their dog. Because their dogs are are pretty unbelievable. And sometimes it's bad training. Sometimes they got a dog from somebody else that had bad stuff. But I've I've seen this over the years, time and time again. The same person doesn't have nearly the patience with other people, their neighbors or their children or their spouse. And I'm thinking, like, why do they have so much patience for the dog and so little patience for everybody else. And I can, I can see it. I don't know if I can explain it to you, <laughs> but it's something they need to look at. Why are, why am I so, t- see, I'm not really, my dog is disciplined. Doesn't always do what he's supposed to do, but he knows when he has stepped out of line. And you know, I, cause I don't tolerate. It's it's very important that anything with that many teeth, who's that fast, (laughs) be obedient and disciplined. Because he's going to run up and bite somebody if you don't have him obedient and disciplined. But it's, it's still a living creature. But our fellow man, that's a living creature too. And we have to have infinite patience with them. We have to have as much patience with them That we would want God to have with us. And that's probably a lot of patience. Because you probably haven't been that good a guy or gal. And so you probably need a lot of forgiveness from God. And so you need to have a lot of forgiveness for others. And most of that forgiveness needs to be other people. Not other animals. You can forgive the animal as well. But if you can't forgive the people, you got some work to do. So anyway, uh, we've gone through the first hour. And I'm taking a look at the callers. And I will occasionally come back there and look and see if anybody raises their hand. But, uh, let's see if we can at least get to, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, four. Or no, I was back at three again. Okay. Uh, so God's a capitalist because he says that which has been is now and that which is to be hath already been and God requireth that which is past. And I equated that with the fact that when the Pharaoh came against the people of Israel not because they were that good but just because they actually obeyed God. You know when he said you know, get ready for this. You know, fill each other's water vases. You know, help one another out. They were doing a pretty good job. Of course, they were. Later on, they they were challenged in that, but they were doing a pretty good job. But in the verse before that, he says, "I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it." And that men should fear before him. So, again, this is why there is a chosen people. Now, there's a lot of people out there claiming to be chosen people. They're saying, well, we're the Jews. Or, or some, Well, I guess they're probably saying they're the Israelites or whatever. What makes you a child of God is your obedience to God. If you choose to be disobedient, God will keep his contract. But you're not going to get away with being disobedient. The wrath of God will come. So it's absolutely essential because what will happen, and this is, this is something everybody should grasp dearly. God will reward you no matter what you do. You do the wrong thing, God will reward you. You do the right thing, God will reward you. Us, we live in a universe that is cause and effect created by God. It's already built into the system. But no matter how He rewards you, if you are going against the will of God, that reward will seem like punishment. If, if you're doing the will of God, and you choose to do the will of God out of love, He will reward you, and that will seem like a blessing. Somehow it will turn into that. Because it's, it's an automatic deal. So the chosen people get treated pretty rough at times because the chosen people are not always doing what they were chosen to do. Back to the parable of Jesus, the two sons. One said he would do it, but didn't. One said he wouldn't do it, but changed his mind and did it. Who was the son? Who was, so therefore who are the chosen people? The chosen people are those who are doing the will of God and they will be given power in the day to be instrumental in bringing about the will of God, the judgment on the shepherd, uh, the punishment of the goats, and all that. They will be given power to do that. That may not be done by their hand any more than the Pharaoh's army was destroyed by the hand of the Israelites. But if the Israelites had not been doing what God told them to do through Moses... And some didn't. Some didn't follow Moses. They went, they went another route. But the ones that followed Moses, they, they walked out there on the sandbar. They walked between the boundaries of the water. They, they took all their stuff and they helped one another get across. They did that. And the young men who were preparing to battle the Egyptians were called, no, come in. Don't do it. And I came in. You know, I told a story a couple of weeks ago about where I came in and told my son do something that would just seem to be crazy. And I said the miracle wasn't that he was healed. The miracle was that he did what I told him to do. <laughs> I knew that God's hand was in this because he absolutely listened to everything he said. <laughs> and I've done this numerous times where all of a sudden I come in with some strange instruction and I say it, and you expect to receive flack almost. I, I mean, I don't. I mean, if, if I had the time to spell it all out, I would say, well, I'm, they're not going to do this. And of course we, we see Moses actually having that conversation. Why will they listen to me? How will they, what will I tell them and everything? But sometimes when the instruction comes on in the moment, I just say, do it. And then people are doing it, I think like, gosh, they're not doing it because I said it. They're doing it because I'm saying what God told me to say. That's where the power comes from. So when I talk to you about these things, it, don't listen to me. Listen to God and the Holy Spirit. That's what you got to be listening to. And so that brings us to verse 16. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment. That wickedness was there and the place of righteousness. That iniquity was there. So wickedness and iniquity is in the place of judgment and in the place of righteousness. It's there for all of us. And if we're there, you know, things are going to take place. And he says, I said in my heart, mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time, therefore every person and for every work, I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts; that the sons of men are beasts. And it's a, you know, it's not the living souls word that that you know the the beasts of the field word that we see. It's another word.
1: It actually means
0: beasts, herd animals. That men are beasts. We have an animal nature to us, is what he's telling us. And men need to see that we have that animal nature. It's not something we should deny. It is something that we should not give in to. But we can't resist it. But God can resist it. We can't resist it any more than we can resist the pharaoh. We, we can't stop our animal nature any more than we could stop the Pharaoh. There's, there's the metaphor that you can add to this. But he goes on in verse 19, for that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. The same hormones going through the beasts of, you know, I won't say beasts of the field, the beasts is going through you. That's a Jordan Peterson, you know, the lobster. He's he he has the same hormones in him that are controlling his actions, they're also in you. But salvation isn't a matter of hormones. Holy Spirit isn't a matter of hormones. You know, which is why they're destroying all these children with hormones. That they're reducing you to flesh. They don't want you to see the Spirit. They don't want you to live in the Spirit. Because if you live in the flesh, what happens to the flesh? The flesh, you're made of stardust, and you will return to stardust. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that the man hath no Preeminence above a beast. For all is vanity. All that is vanity. All that, our beast nature, our hormones, all these things, that's all vanity. It's all emptiness. Which is why we went through the word vanity. So that you can see that vanity is emptiness. It's without form. It's without the form of God. It, it is we were made in the image of God but if you give in to your beast nature you're no longer of the image of God. You're no longer a child of God. You're a child of the beast because you are a beast. But if you let the Holy Spirit of God breathe into your heart and into your mind and into your soul and right upon your heart and mind then you will not just be dust. You will be something else. Number 20, all go unto one place. All are of the dust. Now we're talking about the beast. And all turn to dust again. That's what that is about. It's about the fact that if we give in and follow after our beast nature, we will turn to dust. But if we follow after God's spirit, we have to set aside fast from our beast nature, And follow this other way. And that's a process of learning. That doesn't just happen overnight. Verse 21. Who knoweth the spirit of a man that goeth upward? So he's asking, who knoweth the spirit of a man that goeth upward? How do you know the spirit that can be in a man that will take you upward? Well, you can't invent that. You can't conjure it up. You can't go study a book and get the spirit that brings you upward has to come into you. You know, he didn't say that yet, but that's what he's asking the question. He says, but he also, in the same question, he says, and the spirit of the beast, they go downward to the earth. Because the beast will take you down to death. Because you will turn to dust. So he's saying that there, there's these two directions we can go. I always say that seeking the kingdom of God is about direction. It's, it's, it's not about just a choice. It's about a choice of direction. Once you go that way, you can't get there from here. There needs to be divine intervention. And so how do we get that? Well, you certainly don't do that with the sacrifice of fools, which we'll get into. Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better Then that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Okay, this is following the verse up there, 13, which is saying that your labor is a gift of God. You are endowed by God with your labor. And all your labor should be yours. It probably isn't. You're probably back in the bondage of Egypt. Now, if you want to get out of the bondage of Egypt, you have to go and study Exodus, and you have to repent, you have to think differently. But how do you think? The only way you're going to know is to draw near the Holy Spirit Hear the Holy Spirit in your heart and your mind. Allow the Holy Spirit to write in your heart and your mind. And it will reshape you so that your spirit go up. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, now we get to go to Ecclesiastes 4. And Ecclesiastes 4, we start off with, So... I have a I put in these headings and I, I've changed them, moved them around a little bit. I took some of them from Esword, but I've been making my own to help, you know, kind of outline what he's talking about. And I could put more in before you know it. I got a heading over every single verse, but uh, and then it, it kind of defeats the purpose. But if we look at, so I returned and considered all the oppression that are done under the sun. And behold the tears of such as were oppressed and they had no comforter and on the side of their oppressors there was power they actually had power their oppress the pharaoh had power in Egypt but they had no comforter so the oppressor had no comforter But the oppressed had no comforter. So if you want to change that position of comforter so that you have a comforter, you can do that. But the interesting thing is the word comforter means repentance. (laughs) You have to have a change of the mind. But again, you don't know how to change your mind. Change it to what? You know, well, I, I found a book that has a real neat catechism and I'm going to change my thinking to this catechism. No, it's much deeper than that. You know, we're not just reading monkeys. We, we have the divine spark and we have to tap into that divine spark. So you want to know what draws you near, you know, to shrink the gap in the spark plug of your heart. Because if that gap's too far away, you're not going to get a spark. If the gap gets too close, you'll ground out. So you have to have that gap just right. Where you're still an independent soul, but you choose to get your marching orders from the Holy Spirit, not from your own imagination, not from your own dreams, not from your own desires. Because all that's vanity. We just went through three chapters and now we're in the fourth chapter which is telling you oppression is vanity. And being oppressed is vanity. And complaining about being oppressed is vanity. So you're saying that darn New World Order and and those darn Democrats and we, we have to do something about them. No, you have to do something about you. You have to get the real comforter. Now, a lot of the people that are on the conservative side, say they're Christians. And and who am I to say they're not? But I'm just telling you what Christ said. If you're a follower of Christ, by definition, that would mean that you're doing what he said. If you only have a social safety net that exercises authority one over the other, that is managed by the priests of the state, oh, did I say priests of the state? bureaucrats of the state. I guess we're not supposed to call them priests anymore. We call them bureaucrats of the state. But that's what they are. The the priests of public religion. If that's your social safety net, you didn't follow Christ. (laughs) I don't know what you've been doing, but you've been following Herod. You've been following the Pharisees. Because you've established a system of Corbin, a system of sacrifice. That's what Corbin means. That is not a free will sacrifice. It's a horse sacrifice. That's what you did. Now you may not have known better, and people told you, and you were you were trying to do the right thing. You know, like Paul was trying to do the right thing, but he was doing the wrong thing. God knocked him off his high horse. And and if you were here, I would be glad to knock you off your high horse. <laughs> I I've done a lot of horseback. <laughs> right? So we should we get a jousting deal up here and I see if I can knock you off your high horse. No, I'm kind of doing that now. I'm not trying to attack your delusion. I'm saying there is a way to the comforter, and it is through repentance because that word comforter means repentance. That that's what it means, and and everybody should know it. Uh, the The actual word there is knock off, and they define it. As to be sorry, if you if you looked it up in a uh, concordance, it doesn't really mean to be sorry. There may be a feeling that you're sorry about something, but it means repentance, which means to think differently. And a lot of people are sorry. You know, it's like the criminal who got got caught and thrown into jail for twenty years. He's sorry. But is he sorry he got caught, or is he sorry for what he did? He's sorry for what he did because he got caught. He's not sorry for what he did because he hurt somebody. He was really willing to get away with it. It's not like he turned himself in. He got caught, and he got thrown in jail. So, And and it goes on to define to comfort oneself, to ease oneself. But repentance is, I mean, 57 times it's translated comfort. Forty-one times it's translated, repent. You see, when, you, when you're thinking in the wrong way, and you start thinking in the right way, that's good news. That should comfort you. I didn't know, now I know. I was, I was you know, it's like you have suddenly discover, I thought I was standing on a pebble on the road, and I found out I was stepping on somebody's toe. I said, hold on, is that your toe? I'm sorry. I, I, I never meant to step on your toe. I have repented. I lifted my foot and I'm no longer stepping on your toe. But this knock-on, and we could study that word for quite a bit. Because, it's a root word, but it's, it's, the essence of the word is not merely them. It's, it, it's nun, uh, chet, Um... Uh, Mim, I think is how you spell it. So, what does that mean? Munche, Mim. Get into this and see if we can get a little bit deeper. But it's very important to understand that Comforter means repentance. And that's where the comfort comes from is that we're changing the ways. We've, I returned and considered oppressor and the oppressed. Wherefore, I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive, but are oppressors and oppressed. Yea, better is he than both they, which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun, which is oppressing and being oppressed. Again, I considered all travail and every right work that for. This, a man, is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a vexation of the spirit of grabbing at the wind. So, you know, that's a big thing today in the equity uh, analogs of modern society is that everybody wants to be, you know, I'm an oppressed because I'm black or I'm oppressed because I'm a black gay or I'm a Black gay woman, or I'm a black gay woman transgender. So I'm oppressed, 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 and they hold it as a badge of honor. But they have no comfort because they have no repentance. They do, they don't realize, and for one thing, they're not all that oppressed, but they. That's become the badge of honor, you know, the the red badge of courage that you have all these oppressions, which are actually there is they're all symptoms of other problems. But the point is, is they have they don't want to admit that, so therefore they have no repentance, so therefore they have no comfort. So they'll end up doing things like taking drugs or have affirming surgeries, and they'll just go from bad to worse to worse to worse to worse. And and he has more sympathy for the dead than he has for these people because they'll end up being the walking dead unless they really repent and want to see what the real problem is. So in verse 5 we see the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh and that of course is what's happening. We've been doing that for a hundred years in America. We've been eating our own flesh. We've been borrowing against the future of our children. So we're, we've eaten the future of our children by all the borrowing. They still want to raise the debt ceiling more. And that's just going on to your kids. But they don't care. They're actually, it's gotten so bad that they're killing thousands and thousands of children in the womb that now they're mutilating children that are, you know, 10, 12, 13 years old. They're chemically castrating them. Uh, you know, Everybody's so surprised when they hear about, you know, the, the child slave markets that are going on, you know, children are being kidnapped and disappearing and everything. They actually caught whole rings of people that were transporting children through the United States to other countries. And they're getting away with it. Uh, they're, they're devouring one another because, of course, they're eating their own flesh. They're, they're devouring their own future because they want benefits today, but they don't want to pay for them. They're going to leave the payment to somebody else. And they don't want to see anything that is better. So the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh and raises the debt ceiling. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation. Of the spirit, both the hands full of travail and vexation of the spirit. Now that word flesh, uh, you know, you know that's Ecclesiastes four and five, but we can also read Proverbs six and ten. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth. And thy want as an armed man. Now, we've been warning about this for 50 years. Let's see, how old am I? Well, at least 40, 40 40-some years. I mean, actively warning people. Because we saw, you know, I'm writing this book back, you know, when I'm 33. 33. And, you know, I, I saw a lot of other stuff, but I mean, I really actively, I wrote the book, I started putting it up on the internet, article by articles, uh hundreds of articles now, all over the place. But nobody wants to do what you need to do. We repent it means stop thinking that the government is the solution and start being the government of God. If you want to be the government of God, you have to organize yourselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and gather together, not for what you can get, but for what you can give. Not so that you can be forgiven, but so that you can forgive others. Not so that you can create more burdens and dogmas and doctrines and put it on the shoulders of other people, but so that you can actually sit still and know the actual doctrine directly from the Holy Spirit. But people are still folding their hands and saying, oh, we, we believe we have our own congregation that, you know, I believe in Jesus and, and, and all this stuff and you're burning your oil. You're gonna find yourself like the foolish virgins without any oil and knocking on the door and nobody's gonna let you in. Or you won't even be able to get to the door. Sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Start doing what Christ said or you're not really a follower of Christ. You're a follower of your own imagination. Proverbs 24, 33. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth and thy want as an armed man. And actually your want will come as an armed man. (laughs) Proverbs 11.17 The merciful man doeth good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. So are you troubling your own flesh by borrowing against the future just so you can have free stuff today? Everybody's doing it. But we're showing you the way out. The way out is actually do what Christ said. Isaiah 9.20 And he shall snatch on the right hand And be hungry, and he shall eat on the left hand, and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arms. That's Isaiah 9.20. He's talking about the same thing. What he's talking about is the cities of blood. The the cauldrons, the flesh pots. He's talking about the civil welfare state, legal charity. That every benefit you get, every social security payment, you're not getting the money you put in. That's gone. You're getting the money that the government is forcing your neighbor to put in. And you say, Well, I paid in, I should get something. Well, no. You shouldn't you shouldn't turn into a covetous individual desire. You bet on a horse, you lost. Now you need to do something completely different. And that's called repentance. Galatians 5.14 For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. That's where you're at. There's no money in social security. Now, I'm not saying you can't collect it. I'm saying seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and God will show you a way out. But you have to really seek it. You have to really sacrifice for others. And you have to do it according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it's absolutely essential that you learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. And meditation is a good way to start. It's no guarantee. But, I mean, it's just like if you want to get upper body strength, you've got to lift weights. you got to work out. I mean, you don't have to actually lift weights. We used to call it pump and aluminum. We used to change hand lines. I, I do a lot of physical stuff. They try to keep me in shape for as old as I am. Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians 11.20 For ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you... On the face. Wow. Any of that happen? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's uh, chapter 11, verse 20. Should, uh, should we read the verses before and after that? Verse 16, because there's a link there that will take you to Corinthians. It says, I say again, let no man think be a fool, if otherwise... Yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. And so he's, he's calling himself out while he's doing this thing. So he's, he's setting the scene. For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing ye yourself are wise. Sounds like modern elections. <laughs> For ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage. But you are in bondage. But he didn't bring you into bondage. You brought yourself into bondage. I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak, howbeit when, where in soever he is bold. I speak foolishly. I am bold also. So he's telling you that. See, he th- this whole section. It, it was about you know people who robbed churches, and, and that's what Christians were accused of. I mean, Stephen was accused of pilfering funds that were supposed to go to the Pharisees. No, Stephen was a minister of God in a separate government. And when people got the baptism of Jesus Christ, they were no longer in the government of the Pharisees, they were in the government of Christ. This is why the apostles are working daily in the temple. They have another system. It's based on charity. Now, everybody back then understood that. Because the Essenes had been doing that even before Christ. Because they were the remnant at least a lot of the Essenes, the Nazarene Essenes, they were taking care of the needs of the people through charity. There's still some people in in America and in the world that take care of the needy of their society through charity. That's good for them. But if they're going to be a part of the kingdom, they have to get in a network. I don't tell them to change their doctrines or anything. Everybody should be seeking the doctrines of Jesus, not the doctrines of men. But they should be creating a network, whether they're Amish or Seventh-day Adventist or whatever. Set all that aside. I mean, you can still do that. You still meet with all your Seventh-day Adventist friends. But if you don't have a network, then take care of the needy of your society through charity so that nobody has to go to the men who exercise authority. You can say, I don't need that Social Security check. We've created a network where they are taking care of us. Because you're going to need that. You're not going to need to be doing that if you're going to get down on the shores of the Red Sea. Because by the time they got down on the shores of the Red Sea, they weren't taking any of those benefits anymore. But the Pharaoh couldn't take anything from them either. Because God was their protector. If you're going to hold out and play both sides of the fence... That's not a good place to be. You need to repent so that you can have that comforter. If you don't repent, you won't have the comforter. It's as simple as that. So, don't eat the flesh of your arm. Don't eat the flesh of your neighbor's arm. Don't eat the flesh of your children, either born or unborn. Don't borrow against the future so you can have free stuff today. Because all that is a vexation of the Spirit. And it is all vanity. And it will not bring you the protection of God. There is one alone, that there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor neither is his eyes satisfied with riches, neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? For whom do I labor? The man alone labors for himself. You know, I said that the congregations are based on men in their families. So, ten men Get together and their families, and that forms a congregation. And I've had people come to this and say, Well, I don't have a family. I'm not a member of a family. My dad is dead, or my dad is off. I haven't seen my dad in 20 years. So, how do I get in? I have no family. Find a family. Find a family that's gathering and become the uncle of that family. If you're a woman alone, find a family and become. My aunt Fanny. My aunt Fanny never married, but she always helped the family of her. Uh, you know, it was my grandfather and my grandmother, as they were raising their children. Aunt Fanny was always there, helping out, helping with the cooking, helping with. She had a job. She brought in money, and she lived in the home. She had her own room, and she was a part of that family. If you go down to. You know, my friends in Brazil, <laughs> uh, I've talked about them a couple of times, so I won't mention any names, but their whole family lives in like a hacienda. They're not necessarily rich people, they're they're not bad off, they have some private businesses, but they live in this hacienda and they're, they're taking care of the elderly and everything, and they just made more rooms. So they can take care of everybody. When you get married, they might live somewhere else for a while, but they can always come back to the family hacienda. And, and they, because that, that, they understand that bigger family. We're all spread out all over the place. I have one son living in Spearfish. He was just here and drove almost all the way back overnight <laughs> with his whole family. But, uh, he wants to move back here. He's gonna finish up work there. And someday he, he wants to move back here. And he's looking at buying property back here and then move back. He wants to get out of the work that he's in. But he wants to finish it, finish learning what he's doing. And I can see God's hand in this. That he's learning stuff I could never teach him. And and he's learning how to be a family. That's good. I've got other sons and other daughters. Who are all, they're in their own families and they're doing their own thing. But they could come together and work together. Then that will bring its own challenges, but if you have no family, find a family, become a part of that family, get adopted, become the uncle, become the aunt, become the child. If you're a young kid, and you you know when I say young kid, I mean like to us old guys, if you're twenty five that's a young kid <laughs> maybe you're eighteen. And your family wants to go this other way, find a congregation and attach yourself to a family if they will have you. And be a part of that family until you, until you end up having the opportunity to have a family of your own. I mean, you're not, we're not saying bind with, I mean, you could bind yourself with a legal contract, but you don't need to do that. We're supposed to be bound by love. But family is the, the altar of clay. That's the essential building block of the kingdom. And so those families come together. You're just a part of this extended family. And, and you can change families. Now, if you get in a congregation, you get along with one family at first, but then later on you say, I want to be a part of their family. Maybe maybe the father of that family has skills that you want to learn and you just go apprentice with them. And then marry his daughter. <coughs> Who knows? Who knows? I've seen that happen. So, but you just work that out. But family is key. And that's how you get in a congregation. And that's how you form a congregation. You form it with what you got. You, it's people coming together. And when you, when you sign a document that says that you accept this individual as a minister, all you're doing is giving him his underwear. We talked about that briefly. If you haven't gone and read the article, you don't know... It. They were not sewing the underwear. They were giving... The minister covering that now he can say I'm a minister of this family and this family and this family. You can change that anytime you want. Nobody's you're not bound into any contract, but you've given him covering. In this day and age, that's going to be really important because they're going to come after you and say, "Are you a minister? Did you file a 1023?" No. I have two or more witnesses that say I am their minister. And that makes you a minister in the law. And that's why we wrote the Free Church Report so you can see all that. But if you haven't read all those things, you may not get it. And even if you have read all those things, you still may not get it. But that's why we have documentation. Because the documentation is a witness that you have chosen this individual as a minister. It doesn't bind you. It doesn't bind anybody. Actually, it binds the wicked people of the world. They have to accept you as a minister of a religion. And that gives you some protection. But ultimately, the protection you're going to want is the comforter down there on the shores of the Red Sea (laughs) Uh, at the Gulf of Aqaba. So, the idea that there's one alone that only works for himself He goes on to say in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. They're working together. Now, those two could be a husband and wife. They could be friends. They could be, you know, uh, two families in a congregation, three families in a congregation. If two are better than one, three are better than two. And four are better than... And and then two, got a congregation. Then you create an intimate relationship by helping one another. And if you come to your congregation and you have a tithe, a first fruit offering, and you say, I have this offering to give to my congregation, but nobody in your congregation needs anything, you can give it up to other congregations. Every congregation is a source of charity. And every family is a source of charity. Moses didn't say, you give the first fruits of your labor when you see a need, he said, "Give the first fruits of your labor." Now that's between you and God. What it is, nobody's going to come and tax you. And even if we came to you and you say, "Well, what do you owe according to what you think God is saying in the in the text?" And you say, "Well, I owe you three sheep." And I said, "So can you give us three sheep? <laughs> I don't need three more sheep." And you say, "No, I can't. I don't have it to give. I can I can give you one sheep." I am directed by Jesus Christ to say paid in full. But if you don't give anything in the congregation for a year, according to and we've explained all this, you're you're not participating. Now you don't have to give a thousand dollars, you don't have to give a hundred thousand dollars, we don't need to know we don't need to see your tax return like some churches do and then determine what your you determine. You're the king of your own castle. If you give us a penny, we have to say pay in full. You have to give something. You have to start the flow of giving, and you're not giving it to the ministers so that you can buy a bigger house. Most of the ministers are so. I mean, they're only ministers to ten families, but ninety percent of everything that is given should be be given to others and providing for others. But it's important that you start the flow in the right direction. For the, for the last hundred years, everybody's been taking and taking and taking and taking. And of course, that was what was predicted in Samuel 8. If you decide to have a ruler who can exercise authority like FDR, then what's going to happen? He's going to take and take and take and take. And when you cry out, God's not going to hear you. That's what it says, Samuel 8. You go read first Samuel 8, you go read it yourself. But now if you want to reverse that so that God will hear you and God will defend you on the shores of the Red Sea then you have to start hearing the cries of others. And you have to start casting your bread upon the waters in hopes that it may come back to you when the time comes. But ultimately God is your protector, your comforter. And so that's why I say that when you give you have to give according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But how do you draw near the Holy Spirit? Well, you don't draw near the Holy Spirit with the sacrifice of fools. Which brings us to verse 13. Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and a foolish king who will no more be admonitioned. For out of prison he cometh to reign out of prison he cometh to reign. Did you know that the Pharaoh was as much a prisoner as the people who are in bondage in Egypt? Whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I consider all living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead." There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely, this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, what he's talking about, again, when he was starting to talk about before was the man alone. And... That is not where we should be. we should be gathered. We should not forsake the gathering together that 's basically what he 's saying, and that we should it is not that somebody will take care of us it 's that we will have the opportunity to take care of somebody else that 's why I tell people that you gather in a congregation not to be forgiven so that you will have somebody to forgive so some people complain about some of the people in the congregation the, Uh, They talk too much or they do this too much or they do that too much or they do this still and and I think those are bad things and everything. Great. Now you have have somebody to forgive (laughs) so that you'll be forgiven about all the bad things that you do that you're not willing to admit yet. But that's why you come together. That's why you're not a man alone. The second child, the second man, the second person is just the start. Then there's the third and the fourth and the fifth. So this is, this is why gathering is so essential. But if you only gather up to ten and you don't create the network, you're not a, you're not a kingdom congregation. You're an isolated congregation. If you're not giving out to people you don't even know, to men that you trust, look at them amongst yourselves, find men you trust, and you can stop trusting them if you don't think they're doing right because You're not under... See, if you don't trust Obama, you're still going to have to pay your taxes. If you don't trust Trump, you're still going to have to... When he's president, if he's the president again or whoever's next, you're still going to have to pay them. Because you're taking an oath. You're taking a vow. You're taking the benefits. And now you get the advantage, but you also get the disadvantage. So... Very important to understand these things. Ecclesiastes 5, you know, I I did put kind of a summary over there on the side panel, uh, warns about foolish sacrifices uh, of the temple, which began with Saul. And I have a link there to our article on Saul. Everyone needs to understand without fervent charity at the altars of God, life will degenerate. And I have at least three links in that sentence right there. So you can go find out what fervent charity is and what why life will degenerate. You, the people will degenerate. The vision of Moses in Exodus was not mindless rituals, not getting yeast out of your house. Uh, all these things had other meanings. Like I say, all the words, almost every word in the Hebrew language has more than one meaning. An abstract meaning and an actual physical meaning. Reins, the same word for reins is the same word for kidneys. And when I say reins, I mean reins of control. You you might have actual reins of a horse, but it may mean just that you have control of something. So the fact that the Levites were given the kidneys, they weren't given the kidneys, they were given control of the sacrifice. So they... It was burnt up and given to the woman. It was a burnt offering because it was a woman offering, a fire offering. It was given to the woman who is taking care of the needy of society, but not like the turtle dove goddess of Sumer who forced the offerings of the people. These were free will offerings, which is why they specifically tell you in Exodus that all the offerings to the altars of God had to be free will offerings. And the control of those offerings was, when they were burnt offerings, were given to the Levite to take care of the needy of society. It started with the first fruits offerings, and there were other offerings, and we go through all those different offerings. But basically, this was to jumpstart a social safety net. It has nothing to do with burning up sheep. It has to do with a social safety net Based on free will offerings, which is charity, this is exactly what the song of the Lamb was, and that is the song of Moses. And if you're doing that, something mystical happens in the universe where now you can actually receive protection from God that you could not get before a comforter, a Holy Spirit, a big angel. <laughs> some of you heard that story that that can protect you and, and protect your family but you can't do it to get the protection you have to do it because you care about others that you want to see a nation operating by fervent charity rather than all the nations of the world that we see today operating by force, fear, and fealty that's the kingdom And you can only find that if you do what Christ said. And one of the things he said was sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and take care of the needy of society. Most offerings made today, most welfare provided today are coming from the sacrifice of fools. The foolish sacrifices of the people. And there's foolish sacrifices because you took a vow that you would give them 10%, 20%, 30%, whatever it is yeah, you actually in the case of FDR. You start out with one and a half percent Social Security and and some sort of income income tax if you made as much as ten thousand dollars, which if we look at US dollars today, that would mean that you would probably have to make over a hundred and twenty thousand, hundred and thirty, maybe two hundred thousand dollars in order to owe any income tax whatsoever. At that ten Because you could buy three homes with solid maple floors and oak cabinets and dishes in the cupboards, you could buy three homes for $10,000. So if you made $10,000 in a given year, it was actually the ratios are actually a little bit better because right, I'm talking about 1945. And this actually started back in 1930. So if you made $10,000, you could buy three homes with that. Today, what would it cost you to buy three homes? Uh, you're, you're talking $600,000. You would have to literally make $600,000 before you owed any income tax. And the only thing you would owe on Social Security is like 1.5%. Maybe 3% tops. Because if you were self-employed. I'm not sure if you would have had to pay it if you were self-employed. But uh, you certainly do now. So, But now it's like almost 15% just for Social Security. You know, seven and a half from you and seven and a half from your employer. And you can end up owing taxes if you just made $50,000. You might get low income depending on how many kids you had, but if you made $70,000, you're paying income tax. $70,000. Before you had to make Ten times that. Almost, you know, eight, nine times that before you'd owe any income tax whatsoever. The temperature of the frog has been going up steadily. But all of this, all of this, and I'm not complaining about the system. That system was inevitable. Once you decided it was okay to covet your neighbor's goods through the men who exercised authority, you were on your road to iniquity. And you would eventually degenerate. You would institute the rule of force and violence. And you would think it's okay. It didn't start with income tax. It started with public education finance through property tax. Now, a number of states, I'll just put this in as a side note. A number of states, uh, I mean, normally the county collects the property tax tax. You don't owe it to the county, but the county has been given the administrative authority to collect property tax, which often pays for schools, sometimes hospitals, etc. What if you had a county that chose not to do that anymore? That's what Paul, when he was talking to the treasurer of Corinth, he was trying to get the treasurer of Corinth to operate like the kingdom of God where you could say, well, you owe a tax, but if you can only pay this much, we'd just say pay in full. And they would take care of all the welfare of Corinth through that charity. And that's what he was trying to talk them into doing. Now, I don't know if he ever considered it, you know, where he actually did it. But what if you found a county that would actually do that? Well, it's only going to work if the people are Charitable. It's only going to work if people actually start caring about one another. It's only going to work if people actually repent of the idea that it's okay to force your neighbor to contribute. That's the only way it's going to work. And it will still take a miracle from God. But, (laughs) and it would be quite a struggle because old habits die hard. But, say 10% of a county was doing that. Just ten percent, I mean, Christianity was only five percent of the Roman Empire, and it changed the course of history. I, I think ten percent of a county could change the course of history, at least for that county. what What would happen if you had five percent of a county? Let's see what what is there? Eight thousand people in this county. And 10% of that is what? (laughs) 800 people? Is that 10% of 8,000 people? Could you get 800 people in this county? 800 families in this county to actually repent and seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Wow. That would be something. I think once you did that, if they were actually doing it, if they were dealing with fervent charity, you would see a lot more of the people of that county starting to say, well, you know, that's working. (laughs) We ought to try that, and you'll start getting more and more people doing it. And since we can't oppress this stranger in our midst, but, you know, counties are actually saying we're not going to collect the taxes anymore that the the school will have to send a bill to the local house. And then that means the school is going to have to uh, get the sheriff to go to your house. And that's not going to be popular. (laughs) And, you know, I don't know what they're going to do about the cemetery district. We have a cemetery district. I don't know what it takes. When they started, it only took about six bucks. And I reprimanded all my neighbors for putting that on the tax rolls. We have a fire department in a in a town north of us. Our local fire department's not on the tax rolls. Our our EMT here is not on the tax rolls. Our rural fire department is not on the tax rolls. They're all volunteer systems. So we're kind of halfway there already. Well, we don't have a hospital, but we could if everybody repented and started sending their fruit offerings <laughs> but uh, I don't know if they're ready to do that so anyway i i I have another forty eight minutes to the end of the show, but i my voice is given out uh but anyway, we covered quite a bit we'll maybe start with chapter 5 next week and I, I I saw a couple of typos so I'll have to as I go through it again I'll a lot of the stuff I was doing at midnight last night so you have to give me a break <laughs> and if anybody who's in the network and of course being in the network doesn't mean on the Google groups being in the network means the network of congregations because that's the living network the Google groups are just an email network So if you, if you think you're a part of His Holy Church because you're on the Google groups, you're not. You just get, you get free listening privileges and, and you will get email updates and we can send out emails to everybody in the network in a matter of minutes and most of the other programs that you have, you know, like, uh, Chimp and all these other things, they cost money and so we don't use them. But the real Living Network is those people who sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, pick a minister, and start working out their salvation with fear and trembling by actually seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, which is a nation, peculiar people, that takes care of the needies of their society through fervent charity. It isn't isolated little congregations of people who think that they're righteous, because it's not about your dream. It's not about your imagination. It's actually about doing what Christ said. And like I said, you know, our paperwork, if you haven't read the article on breaches, you don't understand what that is. Maybe if you read it, you will. Uh, we hope and pray you do. And again, the paperwork, like I, I, some people said they had filled out something and they wanted a copy. They wanted it back. And I said, well, no, it's a matter of record. You can send me a, a statement that you no longer accept me as a minister or whoever it is you're not accepting as a minister. I don't think it was me. It was somebody else. And they can do that. And we'll add that to the file. That they, they've they rescinded the original statement that they picked this person as minister. Now they're going to have somebody else. That's fine. And we'll add that to the record. But we're not going to expunge the record. And they say, well, it, it was my document. No, it's not. It's my underwear. that's what it is if you send it to me if you pick me as your minister which most people don't do ministers get to because I'm a minister of ministers you want to pick somebody who is you know closest to your congregation when you fill out that paperwork that's his breaches that's his covering that protects him he may be receiving money from you he can be taxed on that money If you can't, if he can't show that that's for the church, that doesn't belong to him; it belongs to the church. And so we can actually create separate accounts and things like that that he can hold the money in a separate account for the church, and that makes it tax-free, tax-exempt, and you can actually even deduct it from your income tax if you wanted to do that. It's up to you. I mean, you could do that. And we don't need a 1023 because of the way we've organized. But they can't come after him for receiving an extra income. Because it's not an income for him. Now it's up to you and him to make sure that he's using it for the purposes of Christ. And if he's not using it for the purposes of Christ, I'll have to tell you the story about Ed. You don't want to be taking Christ's money and using it for your own purposes. That's a bad thing. And I have to send off a letter to tell that to somebody else, too. But very important. Very dangerous. Because it wasn't just the Egyptians who got into trouble. Uh, A lot of people. I mean, we see it in the New Testament. People lying to the Holy Spirit. Ananias, Sapphira. They dropped dead. And we've told that story. If you want to look for other recordings on that, they're out there. But anyway, I've used up enough of your time. Until next week, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless.